Welcome to the Psych Experience. Welcome to the Psychcast, the podcast made for those who love psychology and psychiatry. Dr. Nadi. Yes. What's the topic for today? The last episode, uh, we spoke about choices of treatment in psychiatry, and, and we're going to sort of expand that today. All right. So in the previous episode, you mentioned that the best treatments don't necessarily come first. So the question is actually pretty simple. Uh, how are choices of treatment made in psychiatry? So psychiatry is a bit of a quirky uh, medical field, and, and I think we can start with a... Um, an analogy. So let's assume you or a loved one has a cancer and you go talk to your oncologist and he says, well, listen, we have a treatment that works for about 90% of people, but we start with the one that only works for 20 or 30. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that will be, at, at least will make you a little bit unsettled. Well, in psychiatry is like that because, well, f- f- let's, let's look into all the factors playing here. In the first place, our diagnostic capabilities are, are pretty low. Uh, there's a concept in medicine called interrater reliability, which pretty much means this. If the same patient is seen by two different doctors, would they reach the same conclusion regarding diagnosis? Now, we don't have any testing. We don't have lab work, brain imaging that will actually answer the question of what's going on with you. Really? No, zero. Nothing. Oh, and everybody's a... working on it. And there was a, I remember someone texted me a, ne- a link one day from um, a University of Sao Paulo, I think, saying that they found a marker for bipolar, which, you know, di- this, this, so distinguishing bipolar for schiz- from schizophrenia, you know, for many years they were considered the same disorder. Until finally someone said, hey, you know, based on a few factors, you know, including treatment success, mm-hmm. um, the conclusion was, no, no, this is a different disorder. So, but it's still, from a practical standpoint, is very difficult. If you're seeing a manic patient and an acutely psychotic patient, is frequently difficult to tell the difference, right? Mm-hmm. Um, based on our resources. Why is that? Because our resources are nearly exclusively asking patients questions about them. Right? We don't have a lot of anything more than that. We can ask questions to their significant other, family members, expand sort of our uh, uh, collateral sources of information, as we call. Uh, but in general, the diagnosis is made based on a semi-structured interview. Well, isn't that subjective? Did the, the diagnosis be subject bias? Yeah, um, and it is. It's terribly subject to, bi- sub- subject to bias. Actually, okay. there's even a bias called availability bias. That is, um, you're going to see a lot of, pro- if you talk to, to a bunch of providers, a lot of them will say, well, you know, um, this week I saw so many of this. And the availability bias says that because you have something in your mind, it's easier to see it again. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's the reason we have, we're supposed to practice and develop s- s- interviewing skills doing what we call semi-structured interview. And what a semi-structured interview is for our listeners and, you know, NPs on the, on, already on the go or, or about to start working is you have to have a, a, a fairly thorough interview process where you get to sort of ask, you got to ask, you, you want to hear what the, I hate to say this, you want to hear what the patient has to say, mm-hmm. but you also have a very clear agenda of what the questions that you have to ask. And include or rule out specific symptoms because based on that is where your diagnosis is going to come mm-hmm. right so so now here's come here's the bad news let's take schizoaffective disorder for example which is a mix of schizophrenia with uh, mood symptoms and a lot of people question the validity of this diagnosis from a 
phenomenological perspective, but that's not the point here. Um, it, it's an existing diagnosis in our diagnostic Bible, um, the DSM. So if let's say you take, you take 10 people with schizoaffective disorder that we know because we have been watching them for time enough, right? right. And, um, and we invite two psychiatrists that will follow the same sort of a rough guideline of, of interviewing, right? And, um, and inter each one of those psychiatrists will independently interview those 10 patients. The, the rate, the, the number of patients in which they agree with the diagnosis minus a uh, chance margin, like, you know, eventually they're going to agree on the diagnosis by chance. And there's a way to calculate that too, which is freaking not my specialty. Okay. But but the, the way we calculate what we call inter-rater reliability or kappa, kappa uh, uh, co uh, coefficient is, is you have them interview those 10 guys, you take the number of times that they both agreed on the diagnosis, right? You subtract the, the chance of that, mm -hmm. and that's what you have for inter-rater reliability. And that tells you how the process of diagnosing and the diagnostic criteria are reliable. So for example, for schizoaffective disorder, out of those 10, they're gonna agree in about, about twice. They're gonna agree out of 10 interviews, they will diagnose schizoaffective disorder more than just twice, but the, the overlap, the number of patients in which they both agree is schizoaffective disorders about two of those 10, about two of those 10. And other disorders have three, maybe four of those 10. And, and so in psychiatry, our diagnostic abilities are not the best. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and so, you know, how do we get around it? Well, we talk about ways to get around it and uh, we, can, we can cover that around the time. It's, it's a good part of the time we put in the, it's a good part of the time and energy we put in the mentorship is, you know, ways to get around it. But, um, so, so uh, okay, so what, right? We, we missed the diagnosis. Well, if you missed, if you're not sure of your diagnosis, that's just one more good reason to choose treatments that are safe because we're not even sure what we're treating, mm -hmm. right? So, so that will be one limitation and, and that plays a role in the choice of treatment. So how are choices of treatment made in psychiatry? One would think, oh, the best treatment should come first. So we spoke previously that ECT is unbeatable for depression, right? Uh, we have for schizophrenia, uh, you know, if we say that if you fail, general guidelines will say that if, if you fail two second generation antipsychotics, uh, in the sense of, you know, achieving in, uh, in, in schizophrenia, nobody goes as far as we go in depression, where we, we, want, we want to aim at remission in schizophrenia, we're just, we're much more humble regarding the goals of the treatment because it's just very persistent and there's always a lot. Well, to give an idea, in the diagnostic criteria of schizophrenia, we have refractoriness to treatment is part of the diagnostic criteria. If you, leave, if you read attentively, it's going to say that after treatment, you have a bunch of stuff still going on. Mm -hmm. it's, come on, like seriously, like think about it. It's part of the diagnostic criteria, the fact that it's not gonna, the treatment is not going to work that hot. It's, yeah. this, this is crazy. So we have an antipsychotic called Clozaril. Mm -hmm. Now, Clozaril has an efficacy rate like it's twice as better of other antipsychotics. So really, if you fail two antipsychotics, we, we don't have a lot of reasons to believe a third one is going to make a difference of the same category. So 
the recommendation is you fail too well this is time to go to Clauseril, right and but Clauseril has a very specific set of side effects that uh, in a few in a small percentage of cases can be quite catastrophic that go beyond what we spoke before mm-hmm. and this is we talk about schizophrenia now not depression right but it goes beyond the, the and, and for schizophrenia you know you're going to have high cholesterol you're going to have movement disorders and that's it we don't have anything better but this treatment that is the best one is reserved for last case scenario it doesn't come first mm-hmm. and the reason for those choices is because we start with the, the best risk-benefit package. So in general, in psychiatry, the first treatment is not the, work, the one that works best. It's the one that will bring you more benefit versus side effects. In medical philosophy, we call that precautionary principle. First, you, you, okay. So for depression, antidepressants are fairly clean. Right? Not a lot of work to take a pill every day, affordable, all good. For uh, schizophrenia, you try second generation antipsychotics first, right? Or whatever the patient prefers, because compliance is an issue. That's another factor in in schizophrenia. Compliance is so poor that if the patient says, I only want to take this one, that's your first choice. Doesn't matter what it is. Right. But then, of course, being psychiatry, we, we don't even, even guidelines fail to keep up with that rationale. Mm-hmm. For example, ADHD, the first line of treatment for ADHD are stimulants. Now, now we are talking about stimulants. It's an addictive medication. It's a, there's a sea of people out there addicted to stimulants. And this can be methamphetamine, cocaine, pharmaceutical stuff like Adderall, and Ritalin, uh, crack. Right, um, but yet we consider that damn thing the first line of treatment for ADHD. So you know, in, in general, I would say the general rule is you know, and, and if we were to take that into account, if we were to take into account the best risk-benefit analysis, stimulants should not go first for ADHD, mm-hmm. and possibly benzodiazepines will never touch anxiety. Highly addictive unbeatable in, when it comes to effect in the first few days to weeks of treatment. But after that, you're, you, develop a, 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 um, you develop a physiological dependence, even though you don't have the whole package of addiction. But you can just stop the medication because you, you're, you're going to die, end up in an ED, have a seizure. Well, if you cannot prevent that from happening, what, what do you do then? What's, what's, the, uh, what's the way to solve the situation? Because you said it yourself. Maybe the best option is not the first one. And the job of a nurse practitioner is to put into balance side effects and uh, improvements, right? But at some point, you're going to cause damage to the patient. How do, how do you solve that? I, I, that's, a, that that's a good point. I think uh, we don't solve. We have to... Um, every time you're prescribing medication to a patient, the question is, will this hurt more? Will the benefit justify the hurt? Right? That's why we spoke last... In, the, in our first episode, yeah. we said, is it really a good idea to give antipsychotics to major depressed? This disorder patients is it really a good idea and if it's a good idea when shall we do it and by looking to side effects and everything we say yeah eventually someone is so miserable life is so meaningless that 
you know, or they're going to commit suicide or something that is much worse than having diabetes and cholesterol and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But before you get to that point, you avoid the hurting, the medications that will be more hurtful. Now, for schizophrenia, for example, it's a whole different ball game because all we have are the antipsychotics or dopamine antagonists or uh, things like that, right? Mm -hmm. So there's really no way around it. And schizophrenia is a disorder that is bad enough to justify those efforts. However, that's not always the option, of the, the opinion of the patients, mm -hmm. right? As I said, schizophrenia has a very low uh, compliance rate, mm -hmm. adherence to treatment rates. Like, it's amazingly low. Like, there's some research that says that by the second year of treatment, 70% of people drop the use of antipsychotics. Yeah. And we can, you know, explore the reasons for that another time, you know, impaired insight, the fact that uh, it's like schizophrenics cherish their symptoms to an extent because mm -hmm. delusions, a psychoanalyst would say that all delusions are, even paranoia is grandiose mm -hmm. because you're relevant enough to be followed by the freaking CIA or whatever is after yeah. you, right? <laughs> so um, it's a quite limiting disorder, prevents you of everything that most people would agree as being a decent life. So, and, and we don't have anything better. Granted, ECT could be an option, but, uh, you know, it, it's very difficult to get that going. So, um, well, that's actually a good point. I know that in the mentorship programs, you do say that are ways around it. Is there a way to minimize those side effects? Uh, well, yeah, minimize. Yes. So, okay. So let's say you have you're, we're going for the safest choices, right? For for each diagnosis. So, if we take, um, um, we're we're going for this philosophical principle that we have to prescribe something. We start with the thing that has the best cost benefit. But if a medication has no proven benefit, then you have no reason to prescribe. So you, you need some proven benefit to justify the risk. Yeah. With antidepressants, for example, we spoke last session about um, sexual side effects and we spoke about augmentation with uh, Wellbutrin, you know, and we also have other erectile dysfunction uh, medications that can be used in the clinical practice. And then we have schizophrenia, for example, for patients on antipsychotics, the use of metformin can uh, help with uh, weight gain. It can help with uh, overall metabolic side effects of it because metformin, metformin increases the sensitivity to insulin. It's a, it's a medication for diabetes and can be given uh, surprisingly preemptively for those patients. But also there's a few choices within the medications that are that have less, um, that, that have a side effect profile that is more um, desirable. So, for example, if you compare olanzapine, it's a wonderful antipsychotic, but has a lot of met metabolic side effects. So, you could, um, there are antipsychotics with less metabolic side effects. For example, uh, aripiprazole or cariprazine, but some of them are new. For example, cariprazine is fairly new and they're claiming it has like minimal metabolic side effects. And then what we need to do in those cases is wait a little until research is done by independent researchers as opposed to financed by the pharmaceutical company. Because back in the day when second generation antipsychotics came up, they said, oh, second generation antipsychotics are better for second, uh, for uh, uh, negative symptoms of schizophrenia, which is a whole nother discussion. And that was not true. And made, made, made actually no difference. Now, it had less movement disorders, but not as much as we would hope, like from 30% to 20%, so to speak. Like 30% of people taking first-generation antipsychotics will have tardive dyskinesia. Only 20% will have. So, and then um, 
and that's the problem. Once you start causing a lot of side effects, we are also feeding. There's another industry being feeding itself of it. There's an industry feeding itself from diabetes. There's a pharmaceutical industry feeding itself from high cholesterol, weight gain. And now we have a new medication, which is a good thing to have new medications for uh, movement disorders, mm -hmm. right? As long as there's a good reason to use the medications that cause movement disorders. So I think the way to go around it is try to start with the, with the medication choices that are the cleanest, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and uh, any guideline that you go to, there will be a table showing what kind of side effects each medication is going to have. And, um, but can you, can, you really get, uh, can you really get responses for the, from those medications? So yeah, apparently so. Apparently so. We don't have, with exception, of course, of clozapine versus all the other antipsychotics, we do not have a clear champion. Mm -hmm. There's not like, we, we're going to say, for example, dropout rates are lower with olanzapine than Risperdal, than whatever comes next. Mm -hmm. But compared to Clozril, they all have a high dropout rate. So you've got to look to your patient and make choices based on, okay, what's going to happen to this guy, right? Mm -hmm. But in general, because the efficacy is about the same, you could start with the cleanest options, the ones with the least uh, concerns for side effects. But then again, being psychiatrist, as I said, so ADHD, we start with stimulants off the bat. I mean, we have options for that. And if we were to follow the same logic, mm -hmm. we would not start with stimulants. And a lot of child psychiatrists don't start with stimulants just based on that rationale. But the guidelines are still not quite there. It's all about the guidelines then. Well, I think the guidelines, I want to say something. So guidelines are very, they're very useful. And I think we don't have a way to say, um, okay, in general, they use those concepts. In general, guidelines are heavily based on proven results. And they're usually heavily based on uh, the balance between risks and benefits. Right. But again, being psychiatry, you know, some things take a while to change, you know, um, and, um, and we have a lot of lobby, you know, a lot of advertising. For example, for depression, people watch TV and they come and say, oh, I want to have Abilify. I want to have Abilify. I saw on TV, right? Mm -hmm. And But, you know, as providers, we're su supposed to know better. And we're supposed to say no to patients when they have choices because the freaking neighbor is taking something. That is good for him you know you're you have a responsibility to tell the patient uh no mm -hmm. no we're not there you know this we're not going to do that now we could be an option one day but not now because we're supposed to know better than whatever you see on tv okay good to know and uh as usual dr nardi i think you have some board questions for us right i have one perfect okay so this is a question on side effects um so um it's basically uh, which one of the following medications is the most likely to cause uh, movement disorders in a patient. So the first option is citalopram, which is an SSRI, an antidepressant. The second one is uh, diphenhydramine, which is Benadryl, over-the-counter. The third one is metoclopramide, which is an anti-nausea medication. The fourth one is a carizoprodol, which is a muscle relaxant. So the reason I'm, I brought this question is, is, is really about side effects, right? So uh, the right answer is metoclopramide. Metoclopramide is a medication for nausea, but also a dopamine antagonist. 
And in that line, you know, Haldol has been used for chemotherapy nausea. Olanzapine has been used for chemotherapy-induced nausea. And um, methylcopramide, it's, uh, you know, taken by a bunch of people that don't have any psychosis. And possibly, back in the day, we would say that most tardive dyskinesia would be a result of use of anti-emetics or anti-nausea medications. Uh, nowadays, it's hard to make that statement because... A lot of people that don't have psychosis, and there's a sort of a significant increase in use of antipsychotics um, uh, for the treatment of depression, you know, by non-psychotic people, so to speak. And uh, so we can expect a, a much, much, rate, much higher raters of, of tardive dyskinesia in the near future in our practice. Okay, I think that's a wrap up for today's episode. If you love psychology and psychiatry topics, you should definitely check out our website. We have a lot of content right there, so please go to nepmi.org and check it out. Dr. Nadi, as always, a pleasure having you here, and we'll be back next week. Yes, quick reminder that if people would like to see any topic being developed or talked about, uh, you can go to the New England uh, Psychiatry Mentor Institute, New England, nepmi.org. Uh, we have a website over there. You just send us a, an email saying, hey, guys, could you talk about it? You can also send an email saying, hey, Dr. Nardi, you said that's wrong or something. And I can bring that up in the next episode and say uh, where I was coming from. Or if I made a mistake, I would be happy to fix it.